everyone. This is Dr. Travis Stork. Welcome to the Travis Stork Show. Today's guest is Dave Asprey. Those of you who do not know Dave, he is the creator of Bulletproof Coffee, which a lot of you have heard of, and a noted biohacker. In fact, kind of coming up with that concept, or at least one of the originators of that concept, where his focus is really about trying to improve and extend lifespan. And the way he goes about it, look, he's he has some very unique perspectives and he is an extreme biohacker in that he admits he has a million dollar home lab. He's tried all kinds of different things, trying to find um, tools that can help enhance longevity and improve quality of life. So I respect that. Here, And again, I do not see eye to eye with Dave on many things, but I really do appreciate how he is looking for ways to improve life, feel better. And he has done so much research on that, that I enjoy this podcast. I enjoy listening to his ideas and a lot of them dovetail nicely with my theories. And it is interesting because as a doctor, especially as an ER doctor, you essentially are trained in terms of taking care of the human body after it has broken. The concept of biohacking, you could really consider it as the goal of preventing bad things from happening to the body and the mind. And we go through some of our favorite tools, but really, I feel like this episode, I just wanted to focus on commonality. So I'll call it biohacking on a budget. But yeah, again, places we disagree. For instance, Dave, and I've Plenty of friends in medicine in the anti-aging field who take a ton of supplements. I'm I'm not that guy. Uh, the only supplement I take every day is, is Cunal turmeric because I have had some issues with joint disease and arthritis. But I'm not a big supplement person as much as anything because I'm just not. <laughs> I'm not the guy that remembers to take them even if I if I had a, a regimen in place. Um, I'm a little, I think, probably less rigid in life than some people who are, are, I'll call them really good biohackers, and I consider Dave to be one of them. But it's a great conversation discussing the commonalities and focusing instead of on biohacking for the few, really, how can we make biohacking, the good biohacking, the stuff that's going to really help you feel great, how can we make it available um, for the masses on a budget? And we do go through some of our favorite tools, some of our favorite tricks. We talk about the importance of the microbiome, which, of course, I have talked and and wrote extensively about in my last book. And then the concept of risk and reward. Why there are just certain things, it's okay to try them. If the reward is really high and the risk is really low and the cost is not exorbitant, I'm, I'm up for it. I've been a guinea pig plenty of times in my own life experimenting on myself if I know that that reward is high but the risk is low. But ultimately, this is about quality longevity. That's what this podcast is about. And then uh, we also discuss, or Dave tells me why, two dishwashers may be the secret to a happy marriage. If you haven't heard that one, do not forget to subscribe and download the Travis Stork Show and uh, hope you enjoy this podcast. I thought what we could do today, if you're game, because I love that you are willing to try different things. I love that you, much like me, have this concept of risk reward. Oh, yeah. You got to do that. I obviously don't agree with everything, but (laughs) but if you're, look, in my mind, you can do anything you want to yourself, right? And you've done a lot of crazy things, but let's first and foremost, you are a preeminent biohacker. But what I want to focus on today would be something I would call biohacking on a budget or biohacking for the masses. But before we get there, I, I just want to ask you, how do you define biohacking? Biohacking is a, is a word that I, I helped to, to popularize and to create even. That's why some people are calling me the father of biohacking and stuff like that. And what I did is I sat down and I said, I want a word that's going to let these anti-aging people I hang out with at this anti-aging nonprofit, uh, how do I get them and neuroscientists and bodybuilders and neuroscientists to all talk? Because right now they're, they're individual uh, areas where there isn't a lot of overlap. They don't share information. So 
And I also wanted this idea of, of what we did in the tech industry where I'm from, the idea of hacking, where you don't leave it up to some big company to do something. You go out and, and you say, I'm going to create a solution to this because I'm empowered to do it because I have some knowledge. And this is how things like the Linux operating system came to be, which is actually running most of the things that were that are allowing us to have this remote interview uh, is based on tech that was built by people, not by big companies. And people just shared their knowledge. So how did, what's the name for all that? And I said, well, we're going to call this biohacking. And I did an infographic and I wrote a definition. And it was the art and science of changing the environment around you and inside of you so that you have full control of your own biology. And underlying that definition, which is now at least the word is in uh, Merriam-Webster's new word in the English language in 2018. And my name's there in, on the webpage and the definition of it. When did you come up with the term? What year? Do you remember? In 2011. Okay. And I'd come up with it a couple of years earlier as, as a name for it when I was uh, CTO of one of the wristband health tracking companies that ended up getting bought by Intel. And I was thinking, we need a name for this. Like, what do you do when, when you just, you want your body to not just be healthy, but to be, to do what you want it to do. And if you want to be all muscular, you want to live a very long time, you want to be really smart. You just want a ton of energy. You want to regenerate after a health problem, whatever it, it people want different things. You know, I just want my hormones to work. You know, I want my hair, <laughs> all of those. Uh, so the point though was to create a community and I did not trademark the word. I intentionally left it there as something that everyone could use and created the biohacking conference. It's going to its seventh year, assuming conferences happen again. <laughs> and uh, it's, uh, it's a movement now with millions of people all over the planet. And it's the idea is, look, I want my body to do what I want instead of, you know, I want to, you know, be keto or I want to lose weight or you know, I want to run fast or whatever. All those people can join in because like I have a goal and I'm going to use the tools to get there. So for you as an individual, because you have taken this biohacking movement and it has become a runaway, both commercial success. And as you've mentioned, there are a lot of acolytes of this concept and whatever you call it, I think anyone who's interested in health to some extent engages in biohacking. And we also engage in a lot of things that there's probably some risk and reward and we're figuring it all out. But for you to delineate between biohacking that you do versus say biohacking, again, I'm going to call it biohacking for the masses, which I want to get to. But for you as a professional biohacker who you know, and, and I, I respect that you are willing to try almost anything. Where are you at now in terms of all of the experimenting that you've done? And I, I'm assuming some went great. Some of the experiments maybe didn't go so well. Sure. So where, where are you at now in terms of the intensity of your quote unquote biohacking adventure personally? It depends on how much spare time and energy I have. So if I'm in the middle of you know, working on my next book or recording podcasts and, and things like that, uh, as well as right now, it's kind of a, a stressful business time because of what's happened in the business environment. So I'm spending a lot of time being a CEO and being a dad right now. So I'm not you know, hardcore biohacking, but when I get some extra time, uh, right now, I'm spending a lot of time with the 40 years of Zen neurofeedback stuff because we're about to release some new software. Uh, for that. And so I'm gluing electrodes to my head and doing advanced meditation in the evening when I get a chance. And I'm doing that because I could meditate for, you know, two hours a day uh, for a, a month or something, or I could spend a few hours in an evening with the right settings and get into these really deep states that I'm looking for. So I don't know if, does that mean it's intense or does that just mean I'm being lazy? <laughs> I kind of think it means I'm being lazy. <laughs> well, I, I don't know that it's being lazy. I think that you are a product of current society, whether we want to admit it or not. We're looking for, can you call it efficient biohacking? I mean, for me, I'll tell you the God's honest truth. With meditation, and years ago, I took this transcendental meditation class, and I was really good about it for about one week because the recommendation was 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the evening, and I had a spine issue at the time, so I couldn't really exercise or do any of that. So I was pretty good about it. And then every week that followed, the 20 minutes turned into 10 minutes, five minutes, then taking a deep breath or two on the airplane. And so I am a big believer in efficient, if you want to, again, use the word biohacking. I think that's important because it's, and I wanted to touch upon this with you. I have a lot of friends in medicine who 
are in to biohacking. We could call it anti-aging, whatever terminology. But sometimes I see them and they get so stressed out about the process <laughs> and it becomes so overwhelming, you know, that they, they can't actually enjoy their life because it becomes all consuming. So that, you know, that's where the efficient biohacking, I think, makes sense. There's a term called orthorexia. You've probably talked about it before. And this is the idea of where I feel like I, I'm not safe if I don't eat a specific diet. And it's an eating disorder like anorexia, but sort of someone saying, you know, I, I can only eat kale. <laughs> so I'm, I'm a kaleaholic. And oh my God, you know, what if I varied from my kale diet? I'm not safe. And they get real anxious about it. Mm -hmm. If you're on this path of, I want to improve how I show up in the world. Uh, and then you say, well, I have to do everything perfectly. Otherwise I'm a bad person then you have a problem here. And then you start saying, but it's so complex. Where would I get started? What if I say I'm going to do it and then I stop doing it, then I'm not perfect, then I'll quit doing everything. This is why most people fail on their diets, aside from the fact that most diets are just bad advice in the first, the first place. They're destined to fail because they don't work. But even if, even if you do, you say, well, I did eat five extra calories today. You know, I had an extra little mint and I'm on one of these weird low-calorie diet things. Um, so therefore, I failed. Therefore, I'll have a bucket of Ben & Jerry's, right? Because it's, it's a a fail or, or win scenario. What we're talking about with healthy mindset around improving yourself is I'm going to do something to improve myself every day. And I probably won't do everything. And, and I'll be the first thing I don't, I'm sitting above a lab with a million dollars worth of gear in it for upgrading the human body. This is where I do my testing of equipment that then goes out into upgrade labs that, that I write about, I write my books about, I have not used anything but my infrared sauna this morning. While I was uh, going through email, I sat in there for a half hour. <laughs> that, that's a you know a thousand dollar item, not a million dollars worth of stuff. So does that make me a, a bad person, or does it just mean that I chose what I could do? And and I think that mindset has to be there. And you don't need a million dollars to be successful in this. You actually. Well, don't. Hey, Dave, I, ha I have to do this really quickly because I we just moved into a new house, into a new neighborhood because we're expecting and. We have flooding in the main house, but I am in a room above the garage and on the other side here, even though everything's still a mess because we just moved in. But I'm sad, Dave, because the the sauna, the fuse keeps breaking and I, I can't, so it hasn't been working. And we're dealing with water issues, so I haven't been doing the biohacking. I haven't been doing anything good, but I, I want to touch upon that because you have this million-dollar lab. And if if we concentrate for anyone listening on this idea of biohacking, whether it's on a budget or easier to do, or you don't need a million dollars, what are the things, what are your top, you can say three things or five things, what are your top three things, for instance, that you try to do every day or top five things that you try to do every day to optimize your health? Uh, got it. For all of the, the biohacks that I do, in, for instance, in Superhuman, the last book, I, I'm like, here's what the crazy billionaires are doing. <laughs> Here's what you can do for 50 bucks. And here's what you can do that's free that all takes advantage of the same pathways. So I'm going to answer usually in the things that are in the free or the $50 kind of price range, $50 a month, not $50 an incident, because those are widely accessible. One of the things I do every day is I take my vitamins. <laughs> and there are still some, uh, some Luddite physicians, most of whom um, are aging more quickly than they should. Uh, who still will say things like there's no evidence that vitamins work or that supplements work, um, which is a lie. Uh, there are actually at this point more than 100,000 papers showing different supplements work for different things. So there's some evidence they do some things. But what I do is I take my basic list, which I've written about you know, for 10 plus years. I take my vitamins D, A, and K. I take my magnesium uh, and I take a multi-mineral that includes zinc. I take a little bit of vitamin C. And I take a whole bunch of other supplements as well, but I do that every day. And that basic list, these are not the expensive things, but these are the ones that have the highest return on investment and they're the most affordable. So vitamin D is not expensive, but if you don't have it, thousands of processes go off. Magnesium is not expensive, but if you don't have it, same thing, thousands of them. So I'll do that. The other thing that is absolutely required for me is if I don't get high quality sleep, I do not function as well as I could. I simply don't get as much done. I'm not as nice to my kids. So before I go to bed every single night, I do things that make me sleep better. And there's a, a few of those. Uh, one of them is we dim the lights in the house. 
after the sun goes down. So we actually have dimmer switches. I will put on glasses made by one of my companies. I actually filed the patent for them that filter out certain types of light, not just blue blockers. Uh, and I'll put those on. I can double my deep sleep and I measure my deep sleep every night with a ring called the aura ring, which you've probably talked about. And uh, what that's done for me is it's let me double my deep sleep. I also take the sleep supplements that I, I formulate for Bulletproof and I take a mushroom extract that has doubled or tripled the amount of dreams that I get. So what this means is that if I sleep six, six and a half hours, I'm getting two hours of deep sleep and I'm getting two hours of dreams, which is more than most people get in eight hours. So I'm cheating on my sleep, but I feel so much better. And if I do not get that darkness before I go to bed, I'll sleep and I just wake up feeling like garbage. So for, the, for all of us out there, just blacking out your windows People foil up if you need to. It doesn't matter, but your curtains probably don't work. And there are studies that show even just the amount of, that a streetlight leaks around a typical curtain is enough to increase depression by more than 60% in a study of 800 people in Japan. So we got to get darkness. So there we does, go. Does your wife, out of curiosity, Dave, does your wife have a similar sleep schedule to you? Or does, no. so do you sleep in separate rooms? How do you do that? <laughs> My wife sleeps more than I do. Uh, she's, uh, she's always been like that. And so basically we sleep in the same room and we sleep in the same bed, but we have radically different mattress settings on different sides. Mine has all sorts of weird electrical stuff on it uh, or more magnetic stuff, um, but our room is blacked out. We dim the lights in the whole house. She might go to bed a little earlier than I do. Uh, sometimes we go to bed at the same time, but it's, uh, it's really important that we both get our good quality sleep. Uh, and so we've, we've worked long and hard in our marriage to make sure that we both prioritize each other's sleep. Well, and that's the the interesting thing is so many people, truth be told, um, <laughs> before I was married, I slept great. But the reality is my wife is someone who has a different circadian rhythm, goes to bed much later than I do typically. And she's has a much more active mind during quote unquote sleep hours. So I have, uh, it's it's not the glasses that you. I think you brought those when you came on the doctors. But but I have I have my little eye shade, and I'll tell you what, I can't sleep without that thing now. And if I don't have it, I am not sleeping well. If I have it again, it's you know I don't know how much those cost, but you can get them on the airplanes. And I put that on, and for whatever reason, there's a psychological switch. And good night. It's it's not even just the psychology side. There's the training effect. Is that five percent of the cells that sense light in your eyes? They're called melanopsin sensors. They actually sense light and send it directly to the middle of your brain. There's light you don't get to see, and the middle of your brain is looking. What color is that light? How bright is it? And it, if it gets just a, a small amount of super bright light, like when you turn the bathroom light on in the middle of the night, or when you're going to bed, or that little bit leaking around, and it tells your brain, "Oh, it must not really be nighttime." So parts of you don't really go to sleep and recover. And that you put that mask on, ah, oh, no lights coming in. It must actually be bedtime. So then it allows a full system shutdown and reboot, if you want to think of it that way. And man, the, the difference is great. We didn't know most of this stuff five years ago. I mean, this is very new science, but it's it's world changing to get a good night's sleep every night for a whole week. Well, and it especially is when you think about 10 years ago, heck, even back when I was going through my medical training and we had just beepers. <laughs> we had beepers and old traditional phones. I did I wasn't using my cell phone when I first got into medicine. And the fact of the matter is it was you're always a little bit on alert for that beeper to go off. But it's almost as though we all now have the beeper with our cell phones and we do we go to bed and the cell phones there, the tablets. So is it fair to say that when you shut it down at night, you shut it down? you get all those devices away from, from your sleep space? Here's what happens. You, at least in our house, we turn off, or really probably, I haven't even turned on, but we turn off the Wi-Fi. We have a little switch like you would a, a lamp. <laughs> so oh. you literally you buy a, a lamp controller thing and you hook your Wi-Fi router up to that. So then before bed, you turn that off and you've got no Wi-Fi in the house. Right? And then the phone goes on the darkest possible mode where you dim the lights all the way. And then you put the phone in airplane mode. So there is no signal. You can't wake me up at night unless you knock on my door, which would require knowing where I lived. <laughs> uh, the deal is if it's an emergency, what am I going to do about it? Nothing. If it's the middle of the night, I'm going to wake up. And that's how it's always been throughout history uh, until very recently we had, we had a telephone and 
you might get a call in the middle of the night or something. It is not worth being on call and telling your nervous system, something bad might happen. I better have the phone on. It's unsustainable. And so there's no alerts. There's no anything going on at night. And that also means there's no electromagnetic frequencies coming from the phone, which are shown to disrupt sleep, at least in some people. So it's like, all right, the phone's off and get this until I drop my kids off at school. Although that's a little different now that we've got this virus thing. But until very recently, until I dropped my kids off at school, I would leave my phone in airplane mode. So I wake up, I look at my phone to see how well I slept to look at my sleep score. And it's my alarm clock that wakes me gently, but it doesn't actually get me any new information. The worst thing you could do is turn on your phone and start looking at alerts from news, which is toxic at this point. It's like eating junk food. And then have other people set your agenda by sending you a bunch of text messages so you can go into reactive mode. So I, I spend that first hour of the day not reacting to other people's things, but actually thinking, doing, maybe taking some deep breaths, maybe doing a little bit of that. But hey, I have kids. Uh, they're home all the time right now. Uh, so no, I don't wake up and meditate for an hour every morning and well, you know, green tea and all that. Like only single people do that. Well, and it's important for you to acknowledge that because I think people do feel this pressure to be perfect. But getting back to these key moments of or the key things that you think are important for your health. I don't need a scientific experiment to tell me that when I'm sleeping well, I feel great. When I'm not sleeping well, I feel pretty terrible. So uh, in a society where we have, I think, lost touch with the importance of sleep, that is such a simple measure we could all focus on. So let's just say you've had your great night of rest. And for you, I'm I'm not, I like to believe I'm really open-minded. I am willing to experiment with a lot of different things. I have friends who, when they go on trips, they take their suitcases full of all the supplements they're taking. And it's, you know, that's their thing. I do not begrudge that. I'm much more of a a couple supplements a day. And I am, my routine is probably not as regimented, but let's say you get that great night's sleep. And then let's say it's a busy day for you. Yeah. What are a few of the other things that you must do, or at least if Hell doesn't freeze over. You're going to put in the effort to get these things done for your body or for your mind. This is going to sound cliche. Uh, It is based on science. It's based on anti-aging. And it is not an attempt to sell anything. But that morning cup of coffee, and yes, I do. I am the creator of Bulletproof. So my coffee is Bulletproof. But that morning cup of coffee, it does magic things that have nothing to do with the typical popular culture around coffee. If you, on an empty stomach, have coffee with no protein and no sugar in it, it doubles the amount of ketones that your body makes. And ketones are these fat-burning molecules when you go into ketosis. And this is enough caffeine in about two small cups of coffee, so a medium or large coffee will do that. Since you slept for eight hours, you got a little boost in the amount of these fat metabolites, these things that you want to fuel the neurons in your brain. And when you have coffee, it does that. Coffee does all sorts of other stuff. So I... Even if I've given up coffee or caffeinated coffee for a week or two or a month, I still perform better with a little bit of caffeine in the morning. Most people do. And there's some people who don't metabolize it well. Maybe you want green tea. Maybe you're not one of those. But for me, having that coffee in the morning is terribly important. And I usually don't have breakfast. So what I'm going to do on a busy day is I'm going to say, all right, I'm going to have my normal same dose of coffee I've had every day for the last years and years. And I'm going to do that because it helps with energy production at a very basic biological level. And then I'm going to say, what else am I doing today? And how intense is it? Do I want to do this with an intermittent fast like I normally do? Or do I want to say, all right, I'm going to eat, but I don't want to eat. I don't want to force myself to eat. I don't want to eat garbage. So the busier the day, the more I focus on the quality of my food, right? So am I going to eat something that's going to make me just feel amazing? Yes. Am I going to eat something that, you know, that tastes really good, but I feel pretty good after I eat that, but it's not, it's not quite, not quite there. All of us know if I eat that sort of stuff, man, I feel really good. And some things like, man, I love it, but I really kind of feel not so good after I eat the whole pizza. So I'm going to pick my food to match the state of demand from the environment around me. And that's one of the basics of biohacking. Food is part of your environment. And I'm going to do that. And quite often the answer is I'm not going to eat anything because I want to be in the zone. And other times I'm going to eat something that's really delicious and full of nutrients, and it's going to power me through the day. If you get your food wrong, though, you will not show up the way you want to show up, and you'll crash at two in the afternoon, and that's the worst thing you could do on a busy day. And I want to reiterate that point because it's something we can all do. 
if you think about the ability to control some of your environment, the food you choose to eat is obviously so important. And I'm with you. I think the the data out there now in terms of whether you call it intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating, it's I have become an acolyte of the waking up. I, I drink black coffee and I will delay that first meal, whatever we call it. When I'm breaking the fast, it may not be until much later in the morning. Um, and there's something to that. But one of the things that got me so interested in health beyond medicine was when I was a resident physician and all of my friends were, they were putting on some weight. They were looking really tired. You can't predict your sleep, but I actually employed that mentality throughout my residency. I might be in the hospital for 36 hours straight, but I would actually pack healthy snacks. And so I wouldn't go down to the cafeteria where you know this because your wife's a doctor. Hospital food is the worst food in the freaking world. <laughs> yeah, the, the hospital dietitians run if someone says that's what they do. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> so you have to, getting back to what we can control, sometimes the busier you are, the only thing you might be able to control that day is what you eat and when you eat. And I love that you reinforce that because that gets back to a biohacking, whether you call it a drill or practice, that it doesn't need to cost you one penny more. It's really just sticking to that mentality of this, this food is going to improve my health, improve my outlook. And it is interesting. The one thing without diving into the coronavirus pandemic. I've heard that the two most commonly selling items are liquor and ice cream. <laughs> and I'm all for red wine. I like a good double IPA, but liquor and ice cream are probably not the two things that are going to get you a biohacking trick for longer life. I've been advising people who are saying, what can I do right now to be more resilient? I'm like, don't eat large amounts of sugar because that's shown over and over to suppress immunity, even within a few minutes of eating it and over the next 24 hours. Couldn't agree more. Even that one drink, you know, that red wine that's delicious, it doesn't matter. Now is not the time to do that if you're going to be exposed. If you're locked away for two weeks and you're already in pretty good shape and you want to have a glass of wine, fine. But really, it's just not a good idea. And if you were to just do those two things and nothing else, you're going to be better off. But it also depends on where you live. You know, in, in California, there's, there's very long lines at the, the cannabis dispensaries and the gun stores, apparently. <laughs> and in Canada, up where I am, uh, where I live right now, uh, there's been a huge burst in uh, the uh, adult stores uh, where people are saying, well, we're stuck at home. What else are we going to do? Uh, we're going to buy toys. <laughs> so it all depends on your mindset and where you live. <laughs> that is true. And it, it may not be the right time to ask you the favorite tools you have in your home lab after you <laughs> talked about the adult stores. I don't know if you've increased your uh, assortment of of tools lately, Dave, but we're we're trying to do our best. So we're we're eating the right foods and I must confess I'm not I'm not as regimented. I am someone who I I like my fermented grapes my fermented grains. And, and so I'm not as steadfast, probably. I would assume I'm, I'm, you know, hundred percent perfect on that. I love going out to eat with employees at, at Bulletproof or at, at Bulletproof Media, my media company, uh, because like, oh my God, what do I order in front of the boss? I'm like, do you think I have a lot of time to pay attention to what you're eating? How about <laughs> eat what makes you feel good, right? Our company rule is do something every day that makes you a better person, right? And so if you want the French fries, I honestly don't think that's a wise choice. And certainly, it's not what I'm going to eat. But if that's what you want to eat, then eat the French fries, and it's totally fine. It's your if it's your treat. That shouldn't be your go to every time, but that is your personal treat. I, I get the same thing, Dave. When when you go to the studios where we tape the doctors, it'll be hilarious because I'll come around a corner and someone on staff will be drinking a soda and they try to hide it from me <laughs> <laughs> or an energy drink. And they're so embarrassed, but I'm never going to unilaterally call you out for your behaviors. But my goal has always been, it just does them quietly. Is that what you do? They know that I see it and that's enough. <laughs> but what I will say, I, I found to be more effective than telling people what to do is creating an environment of health and wellness. And I'm very proud to say that uh, the 12 years we've been doing the doctors, I cannot tell you, Dave, how many people, producers who, when they started working there were smokers. Yeah. I don't know one single person who's worked there now over time with myself and others that still smokes. And 
it's quite alarming in a good way when you can see an individual age, get older in years, and yet they start to look younger and healthier simply because they are around in an environment of health. And, and creating that environment of health is it's something I try to do. It's something obviously you try to do as well. But once you create that environment of health, it feels so good, you never want to go back. That's the thing. When you get used to waking up every day and just having a ton of energy and just feeling like you have, like a lot of us at the end of the day or during the day, you have the accelerator pushed all the way to the floor and you're slowing down and you can push harder, but there's no more room to accelerate. And when I weighed 300 pounds, that was the thing for me that was most terrifying. Like, I don't know if I can actually make it through all these meetings today and I'm just going to do it, but it was not a pretty sign. And when at the end of the day, you're saying, wow, I could still push the pedal even more. I don't need to right now, but I could. And you get used to that as your new set point. You're not going to go out and do something that takes that away because it's one of the most precious things you can have as a human being is more energy than you needed. And we're all so used to today of living at that. I barely have enough. I feel like I don't really, but maybe I do. And just to be like, oh man, there's so much more horsepower and acceleration here than I could ever use. You're not going to throw that away. It, it is the, the biggest gift that I've ever had. So Dave Asprey's had a great day. He wakes up well-rested, has his coffee, waits to eat that first meal, eats a healthy meal, is feeling great, busy day, a lot of work. What is the one tool, you mentioned the infrared sauna, but what is the one tool in your lab, your home lab, that is your go-to? And I'm going to tell you the ones that I really like to use when I'm at home. And I honestly, one of my least favorite things about traveling is you get out of a routine and something as simple as um, not having, I like to take ice baths and not being able to do that. Those things take you out of your routine. But if you have that, what's one tool that you can't live without if you're traveling or that's in your home lab? The thing I miss most when I'm traveling that's in my home lab is a whole body vibration plate. And it's something that I, it was one of the first products I launched at Bulletproof. You stand on this thing for 10 minutes and it vibrates 30 times a second, kind of like mm -hmm. a jump rope 30 times a second. Uh, and, and you can do squats on it, but you can stand there on the phone even, and it's like going for a long walk and it shakes everything in the body. So it fires your nervous system, it fires your lymphatic system, and it's something that's sort of the antidote for sitting in a chair, which you end up doing when you're on video all day long and we're doing things like this. So that's something that that is a, a replacement for going for a long walk when I just don't have time or when it's raining. And I, I miss it when I don't get to do that. It, it's made a, a huge difference in just how I move. I'm curious when you use that vibration plate, which I, I'm a big believer in it too. And I think it's really good, especially if you think about certain individuals out there who might be at risk for everything from osteoporosis or for whatever reason, they cannot, maybe it's arthritis and they can't move a certain joint like they used to, at least for the time being. Those vibration plates, they make you feel good. But when you're on one, I'm curious, do you, are you doing any movements? Are you doing stretches? Are you you know, sometimes I will use bands. Are you doing other exercises or are you just on the plate and enjoying that vibration cycle as it courses through your body? Uh, sometimes I'll stand there and you don't have to do, it depends on the intensity and, and the, the quality. There's plates that rock back and forth that tend to mess up your spine. The ones that, that either are orbital or go up and down are, are the mm -hmm. ones that work better. I use the frequency 30 Hertz, which is what NASA uses for astronauts to recover from space travel. And what I'll do is I'll do a squat, sometimes with a band between my knees, sometimes not. Uh, and I'll just hold the squat. So your body thinks you're doing 30 squats and you're not. So you're sort of tricking yourself. Sometimes I'll do one-legged forward folds where you sort of just bend over, touch one leg and kick one leg back. But when you're holding one leg back and it's fluctuating because of these vibrations, it's intense. I mean, it makes you breathe hard, even though you're just standing there. And... I'll also hold a plank pose on it, which is incredible for your chest and opening things up like that. So like the bottom of a plank, uh, basically, chaturanga and yoga, they would call that. Uh, you put your arms on there and you you do that and you're done after a few minutes. Then you just stand there and the whole body says, oh, I guess I better you know, stay strong and get oxygen in all the areas that wouldn't get it. So you do that, you feel really, really good for the rest of the day. And if I'm doing a plank and it's just a static plank, I tend to be one of those people who can get bored quickly. I will say the other great thing about a vibration plate, and a lot of gyms have these, it just creates a little bit of excitement to a plank. <laughs> yeah. And, and it, it makes it more 
fun and enjoyable. And I've found in life, if I'm not enjoying the activity I'm engaged in, I will not continue to do that activity over a certain period of time. So I'm also, I, and I'll confess this, I've become a fan of, of percussive therapy as well. And I don't know if that's something that you use, but you know, there are so many different devices out there. They, for people who aren't privy, they, you know, they're almost uh, like- They're giant hardcore vibrators you never put where you might think you would put a vibrator. But they basically, uh, it's, it's better than what a massage therapist could do in some ways, because a massage therapist can you dig their thumbs in, in a way that these things could never do. So massage is really valuable and there's a value of touch. But then these things are able to, again, you know, 20, 30, 40 times a second kind of bang on the same spot. And that vibration in the tissue, you can loosen up things in your neck, any muscle that hurts. I think it's better than rolling, uh, which is another and I want, Yeah, I wanted to ask you that because I... True, true story. I had some major neck problems a number of years ago. I also, and, and I know when you were growing up, you were dealing with some Tons uh, of major muscle. physical. Yeah. And I, I have um, hallux rigidus in my two big toes that had, I had surgery in my mid 20s. So I've become a big fan of any of these tools that loosen up your fascia, that, that improve everything from um, your spine to if you have a tight muscle in your glute. So I've you know, therapy balls, rollers, the percussive therapy. I like to use all of them depending upon, I mean, most days, realistically, I don't have time to go lay on the floor and roll on a roller for an extended period of time. I'd love to be able to, but the percussive therapy, what I like about that is I can travel with that. And so I, I really enjoy that. And then I'll travel with a little therapy ball, which, you know, I, or people can use a lacrosse ball which is much harder or tennis ball. But of those devices, let's just say you have a really tight spot somewhere and it's just all day on the plane ride home. You're just like, oh man, I need to get into that spot of my glute. What, what would be your go-to? This is going to sound funny, but I, I used to travel with a tennis ball or a lacrosse ball even you know, 20 years ago because I'd have all this musculoskeletal pain. The first thing I would do is I'd say, what did I do to deserve this? Because it's something <laughs> I'm eating or something I'm doing. I don't have chronic musculoskeletal pain unless it's something that I did. And I know exactly what it is, usually anyway. And then I undo it and then the pain goes away. So when I see these, these poor people, like, oh, I'm on a plant-based diet and I have to roll every single day because I'm in constant pain. Guess what? Some of those plants don't like you and they're trying to kill you with the toxins that come in those plants. Not all plants are good for all people. It depends on your metabolism and your genes and all this. So I find that it's usually a problem with gut bacteria or with eating irritating plants. And that can be whole grains, it can be nightshade family, it could be specific allergens, or it could be other things. Like you mentioned water damage in your house. The most reliable way for me to get upper back pain, this horrible pain that plagued me as a child, if I sleep in a hotel room that has musty air, in other words, toxic mold, I will automatically get that pain. And I'll think, oh, I need to massage the pain. No, I need to actually take some things that will bind those toxins and the pain will go away within a day or two. In fact, one of the companies I, I started has a probiotic spray to help specifically address that problem in homes because mold has taken so much of my health and that I got it back. But it's things like that. So the environment around me, in this case, air quality or even food that's maybe sat around for too long because you're eating leftovers, those are major triggers for this musculoskeletal pain. And when you bind toxins the pain goes away. But if I was sitting there saying this really, really hurts, it's about availability. I love the idea of a lacrosse ball because it's small. You can, you can travel with it. The percussive stuff is better. There's a company that makes a vibrating ball that you can, you can use. And that's pretty cool because it's a ball, but then again, you're going to travel with it. So then it's got a rechargeable battery and then they look at it and say, what is this? It, maybe it's a grenade. I don't know. You know, they, the TSA. You know what's great about a lacrosse ball, Dave? It's that a lacrosse ball is about two bucks and I have never destroyed a lacrosse ball. Yeah. I mean, that is the most useful tool for two bucks and getting back to biohacking on a budget. That's the kind of thing where I'll put it my back in the, the plane seat or even on a, a car ride. And people, you can, you can use that lacrosse ball to work out certain areas. And it's cheap. It's totally cheap. And two bucks, you lose it or you give it to a friend, you can just get another one. So my other, my other go-to tools, I've, I've gotten really into the, the ice bath combined with if, if there's accessibility, I like the combo of, of really cold water and then warm water and yeah. the, the breathing elements of it. And again, why I love the concept of biohacking is 
I can't sit here and say there's some great scientific study that when I hop in a bath full of ice and I have a 150 pound Rubbermaid cooler, I, nothing fancy. And I just put cold water and, and ice in there and get it really cold. And I feel remarkable after I do that. Not a lot of great studies that it's doing anything perfect for me, but it, it makes me feel wonderful. So I don't care. <laughs> There's two studies that are are relevant for that that I've come across. And I have a liquid nitrogen powered cryotherapy machine downstairs and a digitally controlled ice bath where you dial up the temperature and it circulates the cold water through a little freezer coil. Uh, so with you on the power of cold, it's been in all of my books since I think 2014 saying, hey, you know, it, it's here's why this works. But the study that the first one is that it definitely releases endorphins, much like an exercise. Yes. High. So, all right, you're getting a daily fix of endorphins that make you feel good. And there's absolute value and merit in doing that. Hey, because we all like to feel good. That's one of the things we're here to do. Uh, the other one, though, that excites me is that there's a study in mice that shows that three days of regular exposure to cold, just for a few minutes a day, they basically drop the mice in cold water for a few minutes, not enough to chill them and get them hypothermic, just basically like a cold shower. And after three days of this treatment, the amount of something called cardiolipin in the membrane of the mitochondria, this is the power plant of the cell, it shifted in a very positive direction. And it, it's funny because when people who listen to this go, this sounds really bad, the the very kind of the, the average person's version of this is get in that shower, take a warm shower, let the cold water hit your face, like your forehead and your chest where your, your peripheral cold receptors are. And after 10 seconds, you're going to jump out and be like, Dave and Travis are bad people. I don't know why they told me to do that. My head hurts. I'm buzzing. What's going on? But you do it the second day and suddenly you can do 20, 30 seconds. And then you do it the third day, you do a minute and you're still swearing at us. But then the fourth day you do it and you say, I feel so incredibly good. And my face looks younger. And what just happened? It was that three-day shift in the power plants of your cells to become more powerful. Like it is a, It's a battery upgrade to do this, but it takes three days of suffering. So for me, it's about... I wanted the better batteries, so I'm willing to do the cold. Not the ideal thing to do before you want to get romantic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I do not recommend that. Um, but again, anyone listening on a budget, you don't necessarily need a formal cold tub to do that. You can start with just the cold shower. And then again, I live in Tennessee, Dave. In Tennessee, we use the big old Rubbermaid and we throw ice in it. And, you know, it's it works. You know, I, I mentioned my digitally controlled tub. I also, I am living on a farm uh, that has a dozen sheep and pigs. So it's an agricultural permaculture farm. So my my digitally controlled tub is actually an agricultural trough. There you go. <laughs> exactly like I, <laughs> I just hooked up a device that circulates the water because it's hard to get ice where I live. And <laughs> that's, that's how I roll. <laughs> I love it. Okay, so a couple other things. I, I, I want to hit upon a couple of topics that I know are near and dear to both of our hearts because I, I really, again, want the goal of this to be what are things that people can, if they want to experiment with biohacking in a way that can improve their health and, and really high on the reward, low on the risk spectrum, microbiome. My, the last book I wrote really yeah. dug deep into the importance of the microbiome. And I do think it's so very important to start thinking about that. And the one thing in medicine that's always just driven me crazy is the number of unnecessary antibiotics that are prescribed. Yeah. It's a, it's still hard to convince a lot of physicians that that unnecessary Z pack for a cold is going to do more harm than good, but not everyone is completely bought into the importance of the microbiome. And, and you can disagree in terms of how you improve your microbiome. I'm, I'm really big on the foods I eat and I, I do eat fermented foods. And of course, I'm trying to optimize my prebiotic, probiotic intake. But it sounds like you are in agreement that this burgeoning field of research is important when it comes to your own health and that of your family. Now, you live on a farm. Uh, my dad grew up on a farm and I grew up going to that farm all the time. I was in, I was in with the, the animals and the, the, the mud, the dirt. Mm -hmm. What do you, what do you do for your family other than obviously living on a farm where there's all these bacteria? They, they're they're most bacteria are good. They're not all trying to kill us. So what? How do you approach that in the Asprey family? Uh, number one, measuring is really important. So what's going on with your gut bacteria? 
So I get regular data, especially on mine. And we, in fact, for Christmas, I got um, my wife and kids and got bacteria tests uh, from a company called Viome. And they tell you every species of bacteria that's going in there. So I mean, for the kids, it's a science project. Like, hey, you know, did you want control of your own body? Guess what all kids do? Like, hey, let's talk about poop. Like, let's look at what's going on in there. And what I found was that, I, like you, I think food is great and that should be how you do it. But when I travel, I can't get enough vegetables. You need a lot of vegetables to feed good bacteria. So I started using prebiotics. And what I'm doing now for myself and my family is the formula that I put together quadrupled the number of species of bacteria in my gut. So I went from 48 to something like 196, 195 uh, species on tests in three months by increasing the amount and type of prebiotics. And that became a, a bulletproof prebiotic formula. And so every morning I take a scoop of this stuff. It has zero flavor and I put it in my coffee and I put it in the kids' coffee. Yeah, my kids drank coffee because coffee is not bad for you in limited amounts when you're a kid. And we put it it at lunchtime, if there's soup or anything that's kind of liquidy, we put it in there because you can't even tell it's in there. It has no flavor. It doesn't bother you. And that means our meals are incredibly filling because as you know, prebiotics will make you full uh, and it's become a meaningful part of our diet. So now we're probably getting 60 grams of prebiotic fiber a day, which is what the people live a very long time do. And the difference in the quality of your gut is really good. It also means that if you did have to take, say, a Z-Pack because you got sick, your gut bacteria are going to bounce back much more quickly. And I think that's a, a critically important thing. Uh, we also never, ever eat industrial feedlot beef or pork or chicken or any of that stuff. If it came from an industrial animal supplier, we don't do it because it's bad for animals and it's bad because they use bacteria killing antibiotics. And then you get those antibiotics, they kill your gut bacteria and you don't, you don't feel good and you don't function very well. So we're grass-fed, organic, or we go vegetarian for that meal. And anyone listening, we have a huge shortage when it comes to the American diet of these prebiotic fibers because we eat so many refined processed foods. And that prebiotic fiber, if you think of probiotics as the good bacteria, the prebiotic fiber is it's food for those good bacteria and they need to eat just like us. And then you touched upon it, such an important element of our immune system during a time like this. What can you control? Well, you cannot necessarily control every infectious disease agent you come into contact with, but if you optimize your microbiome by eating these wholesome, good quality foods, getting that good quality prebiotic fiber that you can find in, in great vegetables, you can enhance your microbiome and in so doing enhance your immune system, which getting back to, I know your whole goal with the biohacking is longevity. Now, I don't want to lose sight of the importance of enjoying life. And I think, again, I don't have to agree with everything you believe in to believe in this process of we're trying to, we're all trying to live longer. We're all trying to live better. And we're all, I hope, not losing sight of enjoyment, which if there's no enjoyment in life, what's the purpose of it all, right? If all we're trying to do is live as long as possible and it's regimented because we've got to do everything perfect, there's no point. But longevity is longevity is a term that when I, let's rewind. I was an actuary when I first came out of college. I was a math econ major at Duke. I came out as an actuarial scientist. It was all about when someone's going to die. Yeah. It was purely based on, and you'll appreciate this, the number. You are so-and-so, this is your probability of dying at this age. No one ever talked about it, even when I went into med school over two decades ago, no one talked about quality longevity. No one, it was still a number. Well, we expect you to live to be X number of years. I want to talk briefly about the concept of longevity. You have a very different idea of it than almost anyone else. <laughs> in that you think people can live much longer potentially than, again, anyone else I've ever talked to. But in your eyes, again, Dave Asper, when you think about longevity, what, what does that mean for you? It used to mean not dying. And that's unfortunately the current perspective on longevity. But most people say, I don't want to be really old because they have a vision of themselves in a wheelchair, in diapers, not knowing their name, in a hospital, tubes and monitors. And say, who wants that? That's not what I'm talking about. What longevity means is it means maintaining your biology so that you can function, feel, and look like someone who's in their late middle ages. And you can do that for 
beyond 100 at least. I believe that it's it's entirely likely, assuming that some weird you know meteor doesn't fall from the sky and car accidents and things like that, that I can live to at least 180. And is it because I'm special? Uh, no, I actually started out with autoimmune issues, uh, obesity, uh, pre-diabetes, uh, or a higher risk of stroke and heart attack, fibromyalgia, like all the bad things that can happen. I've managed to hack all that stuff. So that's not counting in my favor. But what is, is that we know so much more now than we did before. If you say 180, that's nuts. Okay, I'm in my mid-40s. Now, that means I should have 140 more years to get to 180 plus. What? Let's go back 140 years. What did the world look like? We were still fighting wars on horseback. We didn't have telegraphs. <laughs> we, we didn't have the internet. We couldn't spell DNA. We didn't know about antibiotics. We didn't even know about basic sanitation of water systems. Right? So this is what's happened over the course of time like that. So over the next 100 years, if we can't do at least 50% better than our current best, which is 120, it means that something really bad happened to the entire planet. And that is the only possible thing I can think of. I know the researchers, and you do too, because you've interviewed some of them as well, guys like, like David Sinclair out of Harvard. I've interviewed 700 people on my show. And look, they have been working for decades using things like genetic sequencing that you couldn't even do 30 years ago. And they're cracking the code of aging every single day. We're learning more and more, and we're sharing it in a way you couldn't do without the internet. And I am betting 100% very publicly Unless something major happens, it's not going to be a disease of aging that takes me out before 180. And I, I think I'm not alone there. There are many people listening to this who are going to be walking around under their own power and they're going to be over 100 years old. And what that's going to do for the world is going to be incredible because what we're lacking right now is the village elder. We have this great respect for older people because they know the secrets. They've lived through it all. And I've learned the most in my interviews and in my friendships from people who are over 70 <laughs> because they just know more than I do because they've had more time to learn it. And we're going to have a lot more people with wisdom and energy at the same time. And it's going to be one of the things that changes the world. It, it, young people, will their energy will change the world. And older people, their wisdom will change the world. Plus, if you're going to live for more than 100 years, do you really want to throw that plastic wrapper in the ocean? You're going to have to eat it. You're not going to do that anymore. Well, I like, look, I, I am not as aggressive as you. I would be happy to become a centenarian and slide into my grave and look back and say, wow, that was a hell of a 100 years. Sure. But having said that, I think it is important that we don't think about life in terms of, well, I'm, I'm now in my seventies. So I'm in, I'm in the last last decade or getting close to the end, I think that mentality is a defeatist one. Although again, for me, I'd just be happy to see all of us live a little bit healthier lives so that when, even when we do get to our seventies and eighties, cause as an, as a doctor, you, you've seen plenty of this. It's tough when you see someone in their fifties and they say they feel like they're 80, they look like they're 80. And it's hard to look at that person and see them living to 100 years of age or beyond. I do have some concerns and and you can agree or disagree that, you know, the, as aging becomes more, I don't know the right term, specialized, I do worry a little bit about the haves versus the have nots. And I think that will be, hopefully this becomes something that is more readily accessible for everyone. I think even to some extent, health, a lot of people although I don't believe it to be true, they will say, well, good health is really only reserved for the wealthy. I, I don't believe that to be true. But do you think, getting back to your goal of making it to 180, do you think that's because most people don't have a million dollar lab <laughs> that they can play with? You've been very successful commercially um, as well as scientifically, but for the masses, do you really think, and if this happens, you're a soothsayer. If it doesn't, hey, there, there's no harm in, in, in making this prediction, but do you think that the majority of people could live well beyond 100 years? Or is this just going to be, quite frankly, a select few, we'll start calling them superhumans who have biohacked their way to this ridiculously long age? It will be everyone. And there's a very, very simple reason for that. There's a, a famous video on YouTube of a university researcher training monkeys and the monkey puts a rock in a basket and the first monkey gets a cucumber 
and is very happy with it. And then the second monkey right inside of that does the same trick and he gets a grape, which is a much better treat. And the first monkey looks at him and is all offended and does the trick again and gets another cucumber and goes crazy because the other guy got the grape and he got the cucumber. And here's the God's honest truth. If the ultra wealthy think they can be the only ones who live a very long time, they don't understand that the poor people around them will rise up and kill them. That's what happens in humanity. If you are one of those people who says, I'm going to be like Mr. Smithers and I'm going to get to be old and everyone else around me will suffer. Number one, who the hell wants to live in that world? And I know the ultra wealthy who are working on this problem and they are making it as to the very best of their ability. They're making this accessible for everyone because no one wants to live in that kind of a world. And the second reason is just go back and look at cell phones. The first time someone had a mobile phone, it filled the trunk of their Mercedes. They're in LA, they're a producer or an investment banker, and it's $25 a minute and this giant thing. And it costs, you know, 40, 50 grand to put it in their car. And anyone who saw them talking on the phone was like, who does that person think he is? And today, in the course of our lifetime, you can buy a cell phone for a buck in Africa, in the poorest parts of the world. And if that technology can do the same thing, why can't stem cells? Why can't all the things we're talking about? In fact, it's inevitable that it will. It, it, it's what market forces do. So I don't think it's possible that we can keep this there. Will there always be the latest technologies that are stupidly expensive that only the ultra wealthy get? You mean like cell phones, like personal computers? Yeah, of course there will be. And guess what those do? Those fund the progress to make them more affordable for all of us. So the people who go out and spend $100,000 on a whole body stem cell makeover kind of thing with three doctors working for hours, the money that, that was spent on that didn't just go into someone's savings account. It went into further increases in our knowledge and into increasing our abilities to do this at scale and to make it cheaper. So everything gets cheaper over time, including anti-aging. And it's critically important that we believe it's possible and that we fund these things so that everyone can have them. And right now, of course, it's going to be the people who have enough money to waste. And I'd rather waste it on stem cells versus buying a Tesla. And they'll do it. That's what I did. My car's eight years old. <laughs> well, I'm glad you say that because you obviously hang out with a very eclectic group of people. And I feel like I'm a big believer in health for the masses, quality, longevity for the masses. And that's partly because I did. I grew up in the Midwest. Oh, I'm with you, man. <laughs> so yeah, and, and, and then traveling. And now I live in Tennessee. But at the same time, I lived, there was a period of time where I practiced emergency medicine in Colorado. And for a stretch, I lived in Boulder, Colorado, where this concept of biohacking and then spending time out in LA where I've hosted the doctors, it's, it's a much buzzier topic in these communities. And then you, you go to rural Tennessee and realistically, people will hear you talking about the concept of using stem cells to live to 180. I'm, I'm a big believer in science and the ability to, the fact that when I went to medical school, I didn't even know a microbiome existed. <laughs> no one did. It wasn't a part of the training. And that here we are decades later talking about how important it is for your immune system. And I think about the immunology I learned decades ago compared to what we know now. I am never going to sit here and say, no, this can't happen. And for me, selfishly, I just turned 48 and I would much rather look in the mirror and say, Travis, you know what? The first third of your life has been a good run instead of, well, let's, let's hope, let's hope I can double this number. And so I like the optimism there and I don't see any reason not to be optimistic. Although 180 is real aggressive. I'm going to say it's real aggressive, but Hey, I hope you're right. I hope you're right. If I'm wrong and I die trying, it's not like I really lost. <laughs> and that's, that's why it's a good wager to place because Worst yeah. case scenario, you get people talking about it. That, that's the point. If you're going to make it 180, you have to be having a functioning body. So even if I was to pass away at 100 or at 90, if I spent the vast majority of that time feeling really good, doing what I wanted, full of energy, I win. And if I do what I think is going to happen, I win. Like You, you can't lose on this. The way you lose is by looking at old age as this you know, 20 years of being disabled and entirely reliant on other people and being a burden on society. That is not, that, that's what scares people. And that's how ultimately I would see a failure. It's okay to ask for help. It's okay to, to be a part of a community. And it's also not okay to say, wow, when I look back now, I really wish that I, I had quit smoking and quit drinking and I paid attention to what I ate and all that. Like we know that now. 
And then the question is, if you're not doing that, why are you not doing that? And it's usually more of an emotional issue. And it's way too tangential to go there. I could yeah. talk with you about the aging concept forever because I also hate how in society right now, we will literally say things like, oh, do they live in an old people home? And where you know a lot of people think of this concept of aging as you go somewhere to die. And if we can flip that script, because there's so much wisdom in those who've lived longer lives. But without digressing on the topic, two quick things before we wrap this up. Nicotine. Uh You say that nicotine in small doses may actually provide or does for you provide a health benefit rather than um, our traditional assumption that, and most nicotine delivery systems are very bad for you. (laughs) Smoking and vaping are provably bad for you and even worse for you in uh, coronavirus times because they increase your risk dramatically for something called an ACE2 receptor. Now, it wasn't me who said nicotine is good for you. It was me who read research about that from a guy at Vanderbilt University, came out with the first study in 1988. And I've interviewed him on the show. I call him Dr. Nicotine. This is on uh, on Bulletproof Radio, my podcast. And he's for 30 years been saying, hey, look, low-dose nicotine orally, like a gum or a spray or something, it reduces risk. It can even treat early Alzheimer's disease. And this is because nicotine can increase mitochondrial energy. Nicotine also mimics exercise through a compound called PGC1-alpha. So what I'm proposing in Superhuman, my last book, is that, hey, when you're in your 40s, you might take one milligram a day. That's about 5% of what's in a cigarette. And you don't smoke, you don't eat the tobacco, you don't snort it, none of that stuff. We're talking about the purified nicotine, one milligram, you know, of part of a piece of gum uh, or something like that. And you do that once a day, I promise you, your typing speed will increase because that's what the studies show. Your ability to focus, your creativity. It, it is most major books have been written on a combination of caffeine and nicotine and then occasionally alcohol or cannabis, but usually those books aren't very readable. <laughs> so it's those first two, you know, the, the picture of the newsroom with the guy smoking and drinking coffee. There's something to that because these are mother nature's two original smart drugs. So I'm proposing that since Alzheimer's is one of the big four killers of older people now, and it's the one that takes away your will because you just can't remember stuff, your brain doesn't work, you're all over the place, Uh, a a small dose of that that can increase lean body mass is probably a good idea. And certainly it's something that I've used as a cognitive enhancer and something that I appreciate having in my biohacking arsenal. But I have never smoked other than a cigar at a friend's birthday once, uh, and smoking is just terrible for you. I felt bad the next day. So I'm not a smoker. I, in fairness, Dave, I was I wasn't expecting to to uh, do this podcast with you and see you there with the microphone in one hand and a cigar or cigarette in the other. You could have <laughs> you could have blown my mind if you had done such. And I and the nicotine piece I think is important because you know my my wife's aunt is in her 50s and has been dealing with early onset Alzheimer's, and so many people I know because I am in midlife are starting to become concerned about it. And I I do think it's one of those rare things where we convince ourselves that something is terrible for you because of the connotation of it. And I think it is an interesting thing to consider. One last question. I promised a friend I would ask you this. She, She made me or she asked me if I would ask you about the importance of two dishwashers for a happy marriage. Oh my God. This is my favorite biohack ever. Uh, I, I did a post on this on Facebook because we have this problem. We, we cook at home a lot and it, it's, it's a terrible problem. So what I, what I did finally is I looked, where are we wasting our time? And it's on a sink full of dishes. And if you want to live a long time, don't have a sink full of dishes because of the amount of stress that it creates in your household. So finally, I said, what would happen if we had two dishwashers? And I could just put the dirty dishes in whichever one's free. And then I could take the clean dishes out of the other one. Wouldn't it save our kids and everyone a lot of time? And my wife said, absolutely not. Like, how, how dumb is that? And so I said, okay, I'm not doing dishes until we do this. I went on strike. And about six months later, she said, all right, we'll get another dishwasher. We got it. And it was, it was a life-changing thing to have two dishwashers. So if your kitchen has space and it's in the budget, you will save at least 100 hours the first year you have a second dishwasher and just save time. And that equals, if it's about 600 bucks from your dishwasher, it's about $6 an hour. Uh, and over time, the amount of peace and uh, uh, save time and save energy and just the ability to have a clean coffee cup in the morning, that matters. So that's the best biohack of all. We don't need ice baths. We need dishwashers. And we may not agree on everything, but I woke up this morning and the damn kitchen sink was full of dishes. I opened the dishwasher and they were clean. 
but I was in a hurry. So I was thinking, well, what if I start emptying the dishwasher, but then it was halfway empty. Do I put the dirty dishes in the, oh, and then my wife's confused. Hey. You nailed it, man. <laughs> so that's a great one. If you, your last parting advice in terms of biohacking for free, where the reward risk is, is perfect for anyone. And that would just be biohacking for free that, that really the rewards of it are through the roof with zero risk. We talked about intermittent fasting, skipping breakfast, but something that is actually cheaper than, than the other way you're doing it today that has a huge amount of benefits is going all of 24 hours without eating. So a 24-hour fast, you can have coffee with nothing in it, uh, or you can have bulletproof coffee, you can have water, you can have tea, but no sweetened anything, no protein powders, no fruit juices, none of that. If you just were to do that even one time and just look at how you feel the next day, you'll be completely blown away. And if you're to do that once every week or two, when you find out that it's not going to kill you to be a little bit hungry, you will see very big shifts in your metabolism and how you feel in how you show up in the world and in how your pants fit. Like it, It's pretty cool. I just have to throw it out there as the doctor. Make sure that you are cleared by your doctor to do that if, uh, you know, if you have some pre-existing health conditions. Dave, appreciate the time and the biohacking world. I'll tell you what, I hope you are right. I hope that we can all live longer, happier, healthier lives and we can make it all available to the majority of people out there. So uh, keep on experimenting, my friend. Thank you, Travis. We'll do so. We're the same age. So when we're 120, uh, let's go hang out. I love it. All right, buddy. Take care. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed listening. Do not forget to subscribe and download and tell your friends. I would love to build this community and continue to be all about authenticity, optimism, and hope. Uh, looking forward to the next podcast. We'll see you soon. The Travis Stork Show podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended as a replacement or substitution for any professional, medical, financial, legal, or other advice, diagnosis, or treatment. This podcast does not constitute the practice of medicine or any other professional service. The use of any information provided during this podcast is at the listener's own risk. For medical or other advice appropriate to your specific situation, please consult a physician or other trained professional.